Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 208.GN5009, certificate number 38694, The Charge of the Light Brigade. Ken, are you aware that the Middle East, in particular the area right around Jerusalem, is often a an area of conflict between peoples. Is that right? That seems wrong. Why would that be? Well, uh, Jerusalem is a place where a lot of the uh, Judeo-Christian religions identify as sort of a, a source ground. Which is why everybody maintains peace and goodwill on that holiest of all sites. That's right. And uh, there's never any conflict. You would think, typically, all these religions being religions of peace... Um, that they would share equally in the in uh, Jerusalem and all of its holy sites. But sadly, that isn't always the case. That's true. And that has been true for a long time. All the way back, as we say, people have wrestled over Jerusalem. There were whole crusades about it. Yes, there were. And those had lasting effects. And one of those lasting effects was a little conflict we like to call the Crimean War. Who is we? Well, we historians and podcasters, people who... uh, Beard-stroking academics like yourself. That's right. I also call it the Crimean War, but I don't know if I like to. You said we like to call it that. Hmm. What do you like to call it? I haven't really thought about it. Like, nobody ever said, hey, Ken, we're we're calling this the Crimean War, but if there's something you would like to call it, why don't you pitch some alts? This is the thing about being a historian. You know, to the victor go the spoiler alerts. You can... You can call stuff whatever you want. It's kind of like the French Revolutionary calendar. Just hope it catches on. And will this spoil anything to tell me who won the Crimean War? Well, let's get there when we get there. Okay. And you might you might ask yourself, how did this highway get there? Is this, is this David Byrne? <laughs> you may ask yourself, who won the Crimean War? And you may say to yourself, this is not my beautiful horse. My God, what have I done? This is not my beautiful charge. Um, the Crimean War is uh, separate from Jerusalem by quite a distance, uh, and Crimea, I should say, is quite a ways away from Jerusalem. But the Crimean War began in Jerusalem as various clerics from various different religions were tussling over these holy sites. Mm-hmm. And it, it's something that persists to this day and it goes all the way back. 
But during this period... It gets very granular. Like, which which of these orders is going to administer this particular church on these particular days? Who has jurisdiction? I mean, we think of this as a grand sweeping statement of identity or of... Uh, or of national or religious or spiritual goals, but there's a lot of just ground level, you know, who's going to sweep the floors at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and, you know, which days of the year do you guys want to worship here? And at some point it becomes a bunch of elementary schools trying to run a summer camp. Right. Things that you would you would assume were pretty small potatoes take on a large significance when you're talking about the holiest sites of them all. Mm-hmm. And so during this period, there was this kind of like... Um, Small-scale scuffling, but it was a sort of a pregnant moment in world history, or in, uh, let me let me say European and West Asian history, because we're in the eighteen uh, fifties. We're in the eighteen fifties, and uh, a lot of things are happening now. We're we have post-revolutionary France, mm-hmm. post-Napoleon. There's been a sort of reestablishment of of the twelve of the seven-day week. The seven-day week is back. It's also, I mean, 1848 was a kind of watershed year. Uh, A lot of European countries saw revolutionary movements that were trying to overthrow the aristocratic order. And in a lot of those cases, those revolutions were put down and put down uh, with the help of the Russians who had a lot of investment in the Tsar and his uh, autocratic reign. But, you know, revolutions in, in... Austria and another one in France, and the, the the Tsar kind of intervened. That'll come back to bite him. It will. 70 years or so later. But the Tsar was really feeling his oats. And as you know by looking at a map of Europe and the Black Sea, you can see that one of the big problems for Russia over the years is that they don't really have a warm water port. It's pretty much the motto of this podcast at this point. That Russia does not have a warm water port. That's right. Look at the map. Why do we not have shirts <laughs> that show the problems of Russia not having a warm water port? Our next shirt. Uh, it's will... going to be a black tea about yeah. the Black Sea. <laughs> Russia doesn't have a warm water port, and that is behind a lot of their, their misadventures in time, right? That was a big part of their war in Afghanistan, was trying to find a place where their ships can sail unimpeded by ice year-round. Sadly, they later discovered Afghanistan was landlocked. Unfortunately. They were uh, like, oh, wait, what were we? (laughs) We had to go through there to get somewhere else. But um, they did have ports on the Black Sea, but unfortunately, any ship leaving the Black Sea had to go through the Dardanelles, which is a tiny little uh, channel Mm -hmm. controlled at this time by Ottoman Turkey. And still to this day, it's Turkish. It's Turkish now. And that has always been a problem for the Russians because their fleet could be choked off. The Dardanelles are very easy to protect with cannons, and you could really make it difficult for the Russian fleet to operate in the event of a war. And that's very, that creates a lot of insecurity, national insecurity. Other than that, you you know, the Russians have warm water ports on their far eastern shore and often they would get into misadventures with Japan just because that was the only enemy they could come up with. We probably don't understand, you know, modern Americans taking for granted sea to a shining sea. Right. Don't and get, and uh, the how English, much it changes your national... Yeah, or the English, you know, at this time, masters of half the globe. Right. How, how does it change your national psyche when you feel like you're always... You're huge, and yet you're hemmed in. It must be so frustrating. This was also true for, the, for Austro-Hungary, right? Neither of those... Very powerful Central European states has a has a seaport, and so Austria always used 
was a big part of why they wanted uh, to be in Yugoslavia or what to the in the yeah. Balkans. I remember watching The Sound of Music as a kid and and getting very angry because wait a second, this guy's in the Austrian Navy. That must be the easiest <laughs> job. What's he doing? Sailing up and down the Danube? Nice ferry boat, Captain Von Trapp. But yeah, of course, he's getting sent down to somewhere in the Balkans to board his ship. Well, yeah, probably Trieste, which is now which now is part of Italy. I guess he was a World War One figure, but by the time the movie takes place, it's German occupied. Right. Am I is it okay saying occupied? German, German annexed Austria. <laughs> so he's getting sent to Bremerhaven. But yeah, he would have earned all his stripes in World War One, heading down to Trieste on the you know, Croatian coast. So a lot of these players, I mean, one of the things that makes European history difficult to really parse very clearly is that these players, Britain and France and the German Confederation and Austro-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire and Russia are always changing alliances based on sort of what's going on in the affairs of state of all these countries. Didn't they realize how boring it would make history for us 150 years later, having to remember, wait, Russia, now it's Russia and France against Spain. Oh, no, wait, wait, wait. Now it's Spain and England against France and the Netherlands. No, wait, wait, wait. You would, you would think they would just draw a line north-south through Europe and everybody on one side was the bad guy and everybody on the other side was the good guy, which is what they tried to do with the Iron Curtain. Right. Uh, it's, it's a great marketing maneuver. <laughs> for a long time, we had this... You know, for 50 whole years, you could just say everything over the wall is bad. Honestly, I think this is a huge part of the appeal of the American Civil War to old guys reading fat books on airplanes. Because you can imagine there's blue up here and there's gray down here. And you can always imagine the arrows on the battlefield. Right. It was but nice you, un until people started to do that little end run around uh, on the Mississippi. Even then, I can keep in my head, you know, okay, right. they, they seem to be going north, but they're really going south. But 19th century Europe, good luck imagining yeah. the, the arrows and the constantly changing alliances. Pretty complicated. What a hassle. But the Ottomans were a Muslim empire at mm -hmm. this time. And Britain and France were obviously Christian, even though France had eliminated their aristocracy and had, had uh, suppressed the church. By this point in time, no one was kidding around. The mass had come back in a big way yeah. by, by Napoleon's era. But Russia was an orthodox country. So Christian, but kind of in a weird way. In a weird They're way. They're like the Seventh-day Adventists of Europe. And although orthodox religions are maybe not one of the the major religions, population-wise, they have a very big presence in Jerusalem. And so all of the tussling that's going on about who controls the holy sites. So it's three-handed. you got the Western churches, and then you got the Eastern churches, and then you've got the, the Muslim Turks. Right. Uh, during this period, there were some grievous insults, and Russia decided that she was going to stand on behalf of on behalf of the Orthodox in Jerusalem. I like when you use the, the she pronoun for Mother Russia. Yeah, Mother Russia. That's we should, right. We should do that all the time on this show. We should look for chances to call countries <laughs> she. Like, I like when people do it in speeches, too. America will rise again with her garlands unfurled. There's a wonderful statue of Columbia mm. who personified America for a while. A, a kind of, She's kind of gone out of style. She has. She was, well, partly it was that she was styled as a Native American. Or, you know, oh, she yeah. had feathers in her hair and so forth. But and also, you know, one breast always exposed. Oh, so you think the in the style of the time Puritanism <laughs> is what got rid of Columbia? No, I think it was probably uh, post. I'm not sure what the term for Orientalism is when you're 
when it's directed at Native Americans, but the kind of idealization, uh, the the Rousseauian idealization of Native Americans as noble savages. Noble savages. When that started to become more refined, I guess we didn't have the goddess Columbia so much. My theory is a lot of it is the 1880s and the dedication of the Statue of Liberty. Ah. Once you've got another... Opening your Dr. Pepper there. Everyone got to enjoy that. (laughs) Once you've got a nice robed female figure to represent America, you no longer need kind of a vaguely Pocahontas-y goddess anymore. Well, anyway, there's a wonderful statue of her, you know, a marble statue that I think came from the Chicago World's Fair. And it's sitting in a little sandwich shop in Ruston, outside of Tacoma. It's like a hippie sandwich shop that you can go in and get like a yogurt sandwich or whatever. And here's this wonderful marble statue that I really want to buy, but it seems like it's the mascot of the place. And all like the long bearded uh, girls that work there, I would have to, I'd have to make a convincing case that. You're making it sound like you could easily just write a check and get it, but you, it would not be good for the community. And so you're yeah. holding back. Well, Rustin, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pro Rustin. Anyway, this became, as so many things in this area do over time, this is the, I guess, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of the 19th century, where a small and seemingly insignificant dispute then caused the nations of Western Europe to line up against one another. And in this case, Russia and the Ottomans were always tussling over this area. Uh, the Russians wanted to push the Ottomans back or or have free access to the Dardanelles. The Ottomans wanted to control Russian access to the Mediterranean. And during this period, Britain and France, who had only recently been allied with Russia in uh, suppressing the, the revolutionary fervor of 1848, yeah. decided that they were defending the Ottomans against Russia in this particular This is just for balance of power reasons? Yeah. Russia's too big for its britches? That's right. And, uh, you know, Russia having unfettered access to the Mediterranean isn't good for France. Yeah. It isn't good for England. So in the course of this, um, the Crimean Peninsula, which has recently been in the news because uh, although it is part of Ukraine or geographically part of Ukraine, the Russians traditionally think of it as part of Russia. And Vladimir Putin in recent times, just took over the Crimea again and made it part of Russia, although it's only very tangentially connected. How ethnically Russian or Ukrainian is it? I should know this and I don't. It's very ethnically Russian, uh-huh. although Ukrainians are going are gonna to argue. But, you know, uh, Eastern Ukraine is, they, they tend to speak Russian. They're very Russian in, they identify more as Russian Western Ukraine, they they speak largely Ukrainian hmm. and think of themselves as Ukrainian. But Crimea has always been a Russian vacation spot. Right. And so it's kind of like southern Portugal. There are so many British people there that it might as well be Britain. <laughs> there might as well be a county council there yeah, right. telling you how, when to put out your recycling. Or if you go to Ibiza, it's like so many Germans and Swedes that, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Spaniard. So Ryanair is basically redrawing it is. ethnic lines in Europe. <laughs> right, it's, right. it's making it very redlining <laughs> has been defeated by Ryanair. Fifty pound airline flights are the are the new uh, column of tanks. They see it seems like they're a six pound flight, but then you realize no luggage, no window seats. 
So why the Crimea then? Why well, does the Crimea become the flashpoint? For the this Crimea is the headquarters of the Russian Navy mm. in the Mediterranean. And a, a couple of cities that we still think of to this day, uh, Sevastopol being the, the big one, but also Odessa and Balaklava or Balaklava. Which would you say? I usually say Balaklava, but I have no idea if that's right. Well, and also, do you remember for most of our lives it was Sebastopol? And now it's Sevastopol? Yeah, we used to say it with a V. And there's also a Sevastopol in California. Named after... Named after the city Sebastopol, in the Crimea, Crimea. Which I assume means that used to be the old way to Romanize it from the... It was from my the whole... Cyrillic alphabet. My whole life, at least through the end of the Cold War. I just... Well, you know, in Russia, the, the B, the beta or whatever they call it... It's pronounced V. Yeah, and it's used for the V sound. Is, is one of these spellings more Ukrainian-friendly? I'll be happy to say it the more patriotic way. I'm not 100% sure, but I, but I did feel it was a little bit of revisionism when one day everyone said Sevastopol and no one, there was no like memo that went out, like we're yeah. doing this differently now. It Why was just, were we not notified? Right. Did I not spend enough recesses as a child indoors with the World Almanac and the National Geographic Atlas? I feel like I should have got a call here. The thing is, I... You and I both. Yeah, we. It's like, where was this uh, addenda? This happens to me a lot. Where I'll read a news article and it, it'll say, "Hey, we just found out. We were just looking at some old weather records, and in fact, the fastest wind speed in the U.S. is no longer on Mount Washington in New Hampshire, and nobody else will care." And I will be like, "What? Yeah. Why is this not the headline say in the what? paper today?" I remember when they uh, when they decided that Mount Rainier. And uh, Denali were they had they had new ways of measuring it, and they were actually like fifteen feet shorter than traditional. And I was furious. This only affects normies when Pluto gets demoted. That's, That's the right. only time people are like, "Wait, what? The universe has changed." But if you're a little more attuned to geography, it happens like a couple times a year, and it's very disorienting in your forties. Well, and I did that thing where I refused to accept Sebastopol and continued to say Sebastopol, even though. Times had changed, and it was just the equivalent of somebody that keeps using homophobic slurs. Yeah, I, they think, I was about to say, I do that with a lot of racial slurs. I <laughs> think it's still fine. <laughs> hey, I'm an ally. I can say that. Anyway, the Crimean War was a massive conflict, and we only think of it as now sort of a, a term that we're all vaguely familiar with. But it seems like a vehicle to think about human interest stories like Florence Nightingale or, right. or our current topic, the Charge of the Light Brigade. But it was actually... A huge geopolitical deal. 750,000 men died. Wow. Not 750,000 men were engaged, but died, which is more people than died in the Civil War, the American Civil War. That's insane. Uh, I guess because maybe because of the small geographic nature of the Crimea, we expect this to be kind of a little, a little punchline-y war. Too. Yeah, like somebody comes on, on land, there's some sword fighting, and then it's over. Uh, the Crimean War is credited with the uh, maybe the first incidents of trench warfare, where really? soldiers really got entrenched and then just sort of fought this battle of attrition against one another. So really, by the time of World War I, 60 years later, people should have figured out this was bad news. This was an awful way to run a war. Bad for morale, bad for hygiene. Well, the the thing about the Crimean War is that horse cavalry, cavalry, this is good. I didn't realize this episode was going to be huge for you pronunciation-wise. Cavalry. Um, sure, the cavalry. The cavalry still played a major part in, in war making uh, because we didn't really have machine guns yet. And so... Why does the machine gun replace the horse? Why doesn't the machine gun replace the regular gun? Well, the machine gun 
replaces the I mean at the beginning of World War One there were still a lot of horses in war. I assume the reason is gory and it's because machine gun means you can just mow down a whole just, row of horses. Yeah. What do and, you And that's why you need armored tanks and whatnot. Right. What what are you gonna do with a horse if if you're just getting uh raked? So seven hundred thousand people died in the Crimea and probably like Seven hundred thousand horses. No, no, no. Way more. Oh, is that right? Way more horses. Oh man. Uh, although, cal- uh, wait a minute. Uh, cavalry. What is the how, cavalry? Cavalry. Cavalry. Take the L you think you want to say and just don't Soviet. say it. Hold back. Cavalry. Yeah. Was you know it's always a smaller part of any kind of you know infantry makes up mm-hmm. the large measure of of an army. Uh, cavalry. You're not even saying major this time. Did, what, did I did you, I take out? You kind of said it normal. You kind of said measure. I feel like we're going to get oh, letters. A large major. A large of, major <laughs> of cavalry. No one is going to know what to make of this. Uh, so no, probably not. Probably not as many horses. But but as we'll see later, uh, a lot more horses than men die in this particular action. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. But uh, uh, during this campaign, the British and the French, you know, were trying to manage the Russian access and saw the Crimea as being fairly important, but really a lot of the battles were fought in Romania and Bulgaria. The Russians swept down trying to basically seize Constantinople as a, or at least that was the threat as it appeared. So were the Ottomans involved in the battle as well? Was they were. England, France, and the Ottoman Empire against Russia and Russia, basically. Right. Um, but Russia's right. got home court advantage. Uh, England and France are shipping men and horses and material in. So you have all the problems that come with that kind of Vietnam slash Persian Gulf scenario where you're sending people half a world away. They are doing that, but they are able to establish bases, defensible positions in Bulgaria and Romania on the Black Sea coast. So they don't have to come all the way from England on a boat, sail across the Black Sea and and launch an attack. Like they have local bases. They should have used those bunkers in Albania. They should have, although that's on the wrong side. Also, they weren't there yet. (laughs) But except for that, Ken, great idea. Uh, So invading the Crimea, I mean, most of the goal of the allied side of this conflict. Were they called the Allied They side? did call themselves I the Allies. I wonder if that's the, is that the first appearance of the, the big team thinking they're the Allies? Well, Maybe. you know, the the Russians were didn't have a ton of... Allies. It wasn't an ally. They didn't have an ally. They were effort. called the Russians. <laughs> yeah. And I think we called the Germans and the Italians the Axis because clearly they, they represent an Axis 
going so north, central south. Europe, yeah, right through with with opponents on both sides. It's the same reason people say the Central Powers during World War One, right? Although the it does Jap- make us sound better because we're allies. We're allies. We've got friends. Isn't that sweet? Uh, and in this case, you're you are naturally thinking of England and France as us or you, right? I mean, right. you're not you're not identifying with the Russians or even the Ottomans. Although the England, you know, England France fighting together on the same side was kind of an interesting novelty at this time in European history. That's right, and it was only fifty years before where they were still really tussling with each other for dominance of the world, right? They were no friends. Set the geographic, um, so this is a measure of how, or a measure of how big a threat they believe Russia to be if they're putting aside all that cultural baggage. Right, although Russia had only recently, you know, uh, saved their butts, as we say. It must be tricky in the papers to, to see, like, who's our friend now. Although, because news was, I mean, sources of news were so small, you could drum up all kinds of popular support for, I mean, there were only... Three newspapers or whatever. If uh, and a great deal more government control over them, I imagine. Now set the scene for somebody who's not looking at a map. The Crimea itself is a small peninsula, kind of dangling. It's a, off of the a, north it's side of uvula. The, it's a uvula hanging oh, to the Black Sea. Right. It's uh, it's it's basically, and I wouldn't even call it small. I would say it were it was it's pretty testicular down into the Black Sea, which is an oval shaped sea. Otherwise, it's not an irregularly shaped sea. It's kind of almost a giant crater. Uh, except for this promontory or, yeah, peninsula. So Odessa, the city of Odessa, which is a large seaport at the southern side of the Ukraine, is kind of up by another country we've talked about, Moldova. Moldova. um, At the very northern side of the Black Sea, kind of to the west of Crimea. And that's a large seaport. But then Sevastopol, or Sebastopol, is a port of, of great importance at the very southern tip of Crimea. It's about the, I mean, you, you've said that a lot of the campaign, that the arena of the battles was, was not just the Crimean Peninsula, but the Crimea itself is roughly the size of Maryland, maybe? Roughly the size of Maryland. That's a very interesting way of describing it. But think about it in terms of its proportion of the Black Sea. You know, it divides. Yes. It separates off the Sea of Azov uh, up there, you know, and the, and that's, the northeast. that's where you can see right there that Russia does have a little peninsula that connects via a bridge. It's got a bridge today. Did it have a bridge then? Well, let's see. It might have been a land bridge or it could have been a, a ferry boat. Let's say it was a ferry. I think it was a ferry. But it's close enough that Russia could make a... I mean, I'm not sure how valid the claim is that Crimea is part of Russia, but but how can Staten Island be part of New York City? Staten Island is rightfully New Jersey. I'm sorry to step out and say it, but culturally, it's New Jersey. They speak New Jerseyan. It looks like the first. Um, it looks like the first bridge across that carriage strait might have actually been built by Hitler when he was occupying the territory during the war. Well, thank goodness we found a way to mention Hitler. I was afraid we weren't going to. We'd gotten pretty far along. I don't want to imply that he only did good things, but he did build that bridge. <laughs> he did, you know, the trains did run on time. There are, so, And there are still ferries and, and, and of course, a, a bridge today. But that's the basis for the Russian claim, that we've built a bridge from whatever this part of Russia is called to the eastern bit of the Crimea. I think that's their claim, or at least if you can access it, then, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law, right? I mean, the Crimea is also barely connected to the Ukraine as well. Right. I mean, what what looks on the map like a pretty solid connection, you get up close and it's actually a series of 
rivers and canals and estuaries that almost divides Crimea from the Ukraine as well. It's, it does. It does. It's, it's, a, it's just a few, uh, it's maybe like three miles wide, the actual land connection. It's a swampy mess there. So Crimea is extremely uh, strategically important, although really what the allies are trying to do is just push the Russians back out of the Balkan Peninsula. But once they're pretty established there and the Russians have been pushed back, there's kind of a feeling like, well, let's press this advantage a little bit because by Jove, we're in the midst of a jolly good war. Why don't we take it to them? And what do they want? They want the Russians out of Crimea and what there instead? Well, they want, um, it's unclear what the intention for Crimea would be, but they want to kind of defeat, make it difficult for the Russians to launch attacks from Sevastopol, uh, take control of the region, Mm -hmm. let's say. And the problem is that the Ottoman Empire is now in decline. For 700 years prior, the Ottomans had been been the big players. Uh, Constantinople was the largest city in the world for a, for a time. And the Ottomans invaded Europe multiple times all the way to Budapest. But now they're a legacy empire. They're Microsoft. Yeah. They're They've fa- got tenure. They're falling apart. They got lazy. They started, you know, they started laying back and eating fruit and uh, basking in their glory. And they became, a, they were, I mean, I don't want to suggest that there are empires in decline in our present day, but it used to happen fairly often. I can't think of any. <laughs> <laughs> so the British, um, the British had a, a general in command of their forces during this or in this region uh, by the name of Fitzroy Somerset, who was who was the Baron Raglan, known as Fitzroy Raglan. I don't like having to learn two names for everyone. Yeah. You can't so, be Fitzroy Somerset and Lord Raglan. Choose one. Let's call him, let's call him Lord Raglan. Lord Raglan. And uh, Baron Raglan is uh, in command of the British army in this region. And as we often see in these kind of allied situations, there was also a French commander and an Ottoman commander, but they were operating under the auspices of Lord's, Lord Raglan's command. Mm-hmm. And he is given a kind of unclear suggestion of an order from back home in merry old England. If you can take Sevastopol without great loss of life, why not try it? Is this really how orders come down from the British high command? Like they're all very kind of polite and vague and don't you know? At this point in time, yes. And, And the British military is a colonial one. And most of the officers come from the aristocratic class. This was true also in Germany all the way through World War I. It was common of the time to think that the aristocrats were there not just because they got to landowning early, but because they were superior people, right? They were, they were born and bred to the manner born. The aristocrats. And so, so they were better suited for command, Right, they were. They had. Right, it's, it's self-evident that yeah. all my ideas are good, and the way I phrase this dispatch is perfect. That's right. I am a general because I was born to be a general, and so the officer corps and the state, the the parliament are all you know from the same social classes and the same supper clubs, and so you give these orders that are like eh, I say, why don't you take Sebastopol if it's at all impossible. <laughs> And uh, Lord Raglan decides to mount this campaign. But he's not an especially great commander. He's kind of a, a, a not entirely hapless. I mean, most of these 
uh, officers are career officers in the in the military, but they spend a lot of time parading around and worrying about how much gold braid is on their, you know, tailor-made uniforms and less time really studying war. The French and the Turks must love taking orders from this guy. Well, but they have the same problems, yeah. right? So uh, Raglan mounts an invasion of Crimea and he he kind of comes in north of Sevastopol. Mm-hmm. It's a naval invasion? It's a naval invasion. They all they all get into their ships and whatnot. And this is a this yeah, is an, I can picture that. Ships and boats. And they sail across and they fight a pretty great battle, the Battle of Alma, where they pretty decisively rout the Russian army under the leadership of a general named Menshikov. But in a situation very similar to uh, Dunkirk many years later, at the beginning of World War II, the British don't press their advantage. So they've got the Russians, they've beaten them, they've They've got got them on the run. They've got a beachhead. And they don't chase them down. Hmm. And so they let the Russians withdraw, but maintain their their forces, uh, which is pretty bad if you're if you're, you're isolated on the side of the Crimea. That's right. And if you're marching forward, you don't want this army to just retreat backward and and build defenses a little further down the road. Right. But Raglan lets it happen, and it's it's quite a. Although they win the battle of Alma, they don't win it decisively. And so Raglan has a a plan to circle around, flank Sevastopol, and come up from the south, which they perceive to be like the weakest part of the defenses Mm -hmm. of Sevastopol. And then they're going to lay siege to the town. And so they they make this long march, and they arrive at Sevastopol, and it becomes clear that they should just attack immediately because there are no defenses to the south. But Raglan is indecisive and somewhat timid and very vested in his plan to lay siege. So instead of... They lay siege to a city they could have just walked into? They could have just walked into. (laughs) And so they spend all this time building trenches and building defenses where they're going to do this protracted sort of starve them out siege, giving the Russians ample time to build these defenses and to redirect troops to defend the Southern front. It's like the scene in the movie where the character's like, now, honey, you're going to say no, but let me tell you why we need to, and she's like, yes. And he's like, no, no, you're not listening to me. What? You said yes. <laughs> but in this case, Russia digs in. Russia digs in. And there are, and eventually the the allies launch an attack. And the allies are not especially friends with one another. For instance, Ragland, there's a lot of drinking and uh, pork eating but a major component of his army are Muslim Ottomans. I so thought you were going to say drinking and porking. Drinking so a whole and, lot of drinking and porking. And porking, which again is not, it's, it's frowned upon by in, the in Ottomans. The, in the Quran. So the, so the army itself is kind of, you know, at odds with one another. Yeah. They launch an attack and it's largely successful. They drive the Russians back. But, you know, g- ground is gained and lost. And at a certain point, um, the Russian army has has overrun certain portion of what had formerly been allied territory and they've captured some artillery and Raglan is adamant that this artillery not be lost but the the Russian army has retreated to a fairly strong position in a sort of high ground called the Causeway Heights and they're up there with these British guns strategically that's got to be a great position strategically pretty great position relative to where the British are although there's plenty of opportunity to 
circle them and take them from the heights. Raglan's standing there kind of on the battlefield, issues an order, again, fairly vague order. Um, He says, advance rapidly to the front and try to prevent the enemy from carrying away the guns. I like when we do British accents. It's like they're almost too inbred to get their <laughs> lips and teeth to work. Like they have they have several more layers of teeth or jowl than we do. It's funny because when you do actually keep a stiff upper lip, you can see that my lip is very stiff. Yeah, I didn't realize a stiff upper lip was literal. A stiff upper lip does then create a certain way of speaking. Plus your mutton chops get in the way. But it's not clear what he means. Uh, advance rapidly to the front and prevent the enemy from carrying away the guns. And so... There's a lot of advantage in vagueness in that kind of position, right? That's right. Something that goes right was all your ideas. Something that goes wrong, you were just misinterpreted. You were misinterpreted, precisely. And so uh, his aide-de-camp delivers this message to a man by the name of George Bingham, who is also an aristocrat, and the Earl of Lucan. And so he's known as George Lucan, and we'll call him the Earl of Lucan. It's got to be so tricky on the field when... Every, well, every single person, you have to remember the, all no, the, the the peerage and the... No one's remembering their names. They're all known as their, uh, that's gotta as be, their estate. It's got to be so weird also. Lucan. Because when you ascend, you have a name, but it's because your father is the Earl of Lucan. And so when you ascend to the earldom from your, you know, from your school days or whatever, you lose your name and become, oh, yeah. Lucan is my father. You know, I'm just George Bingham. Imagine if everybody called you Rainier Valley or yeah, you know, right. whatever your neighborhood I is. I wouldn't mind that if they called me Goldenrod. Uh, so Lucan is in charge of the cavalry. Wow. Nice. Here. And he has, and the cavalry is divided into light cavalry and heavy cavalry. Right. It's the charge of the light brigade because this is the light cavalry, which right. means what? Less art. Armor? Yeah. Uh, the, the heavy cavalry is on bigger war horses, and they're meant to be a kind of blunt instrument, whereas the light cavalry is fast. They are, they're on fast horses. They move into battle at a hot clip, and they do this. They have kind of sabers that it's a slashing Hmm. advance that's meant to terrify enemy infantry. It's funny that it's horse body type as well, though. Yeah, you know? oh, for sure. Like light, uh, agile horses if you're, versus... If you're a thick boy, as we say in our time, <laughs> you're heavy cavalry. And uh, the light cavalry is commanded by an underling of Bingham, the Earl of Lucan, a man by the name of James Brudenell. But what are we really going to call him, John? The Earl of Cardigan. Oh, Cardigan. Cardigan. I know one thing about this guy. Yeah. Which is that the cardigan sweater is named for him. The cardigan sweater is named for him in part because of his fame during this campaign. Yeah, he, uh, well, getting a little ahead, but he comes back to England after this campaign and the kind of woolen waistcoats that everybody's wearing in the Crimean winter become uh, a fashion craze. A fashion craze. And because that kind of sweater did not exist. In honor of him, although we'll see that that was maybe a the, little bit The honor's a little premature. Did you know there's another fashion uh, outcome of the of the Battle of Balaclava? Tell me more. Well, you, do you know what a balaclava is? Do I ever. Like, you ski. Yes, I do. But do skiers, I, I used to call these things ski masks. Yeah. Or when I was a kid, Spider-Man masks. <laughs> or bank robber. <laughs> we say bank robber masks. Can I wear one of those bank robber masks? And they're used by all those three groups. They're used by bank robbers and skiers and spider And Spider-Mans. That's the three. 
right. the three quadrants of the of selling your balaclavas. We don't use them in skiing as much, but you'll see them now in special forces and uh, police groups that are like um, in countries where the police might suffer repercussions from being in the police, like in Mexico or in in Ukraine even. If you're a policeman and you're carrying out your duties against a sort of rebel group, mm-hmm. you mask your identity with a balaclava or clava uh, in order that your family not be targeted. But you never called them this when you were no, we called them, up in Alaska. We called them ski masks. Although, you know, we I think we knew what they were called. But then later on, you just, I mean, really, it's just doing the job of a scarf. So this battle is huge for knitwear. Yeah. Like Britain, like Britain just decided to name cardigans and balaclavas after, after the, events the, the of memory this. of this one battle. That's right. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So tell us what happened that made it so memorable. So the aide-de-camp to Raglan, uh, a man by the name of Captain Lewis Nolan. Does he have another name we need he to know? He doesn't. He's just, we're just going to call him Nolan. He's not the Viscount of Harumthurpter? Uh, as, as far as I know, he's not. Okay. Nolan comes down from Raglan and says to Lucan, uh, you're meant to advance and take the guns. He delivers this advance rapidly order. And Lucan says, where exactly? And Nolan kind of repeats Raglan's gesture, just sort of a sweeping arm sweep across this valley, which has heights on both sides. And then at the end, it's a, it's a channel. Uh, and then at the end, there is a, an entrenched Russian army. So they're trying this military objective based on a kind of a vague sweeping arm motion. Just sort of like up there. Around there. Well, and a lot of the alt- artillery is in the heights. Mm-hmm. But the perception of this arm sweep is the valley, like up the valley. We're at one end of it, and the Russians are at the other. And here's the order. Did Raglan even mean up the valley, or did he not really care? Raglan just meant Those are details. capture his the flag. Yeah. You know, from his perspective, he couldn't see the Russians. He was up uh, over yonder. He's uh, back at the officer's club. He's at the officer's club, right, drinking a, drinking a, a gin martini. And he says, recapture these guns. That's what he's interested in. But the order becomes somewhat garbled as it is transferred in this uh, game of telephone. You know what they call game of telephone in Britain? What? Chinese whispers. 
Chinese whispers. It's super racist. Yeah, isn't that charming? Well, you know, they have a lot, a long history. I like that our term is less racist for a change. That's, 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 a, that's a real blow for America there. Well, our, our, ours is very technology-based, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we didn't have this, apparently. Although telephone, the one instrument that would have made this telephone go away, if they had one of those field telephones and Raglan, and they could actually say, uh, sir, I have a question. Do you right. mean the valley or do you... You know, but a, it, a field telephone would have solved this whole thing. It wouldn't have been a direct telephone, though. It would have been telephone this guy, then telephone the I next guess guy. that's true. So, Nolan says to Lucan, here's the order. And Lucan goes to his subordinate, Brudenell, the Earl of Cardigan, Cardigan, and repeats the order. Now, Cardigan is in command of the Light Brigade. And, you know, when I was growing up, I always thought Light Brigade, it was light, like uh, like sunlight or... Like you know, light-colored? Light-colored. Uh, but it's just that they're, they have these lighter horses. And Lucan is in charge of the heavy brigade. So Lucan says, you know, charge up there and recapture those guns. And again, sort of makes this sweeping motion. But un- unfortunately, there was another element, which was that Cardigan was Lucan's brother-in-law. Do they like each other or not? And they hate each other's guts. <laughs> And the Earl of Lucan is in charge of the Earl of Cardigan. He's his superior. And so he's giving this order, which on the ground, looking up this channel, is clearly a suicide run. Mm -hmm. All the soldiers can see there are Russians on both sides and Russians at the end. And in fact, this part of why we think of the charge of the Light Brigade and why we remember it even now is that in its immediate aftermath, Alfred Lord Tennyson, who was at the time recently appointed the Poet Poet Laureate of England, wrote a commemorative poem of the battle. And he says um, within his poem, like, it's a valley of death. He says, charge for the guns. Was there a man dismayed? No. Uh, Theirs was not to make reply. Theirs was not to reason why. Theirs was but to do and die. It's funny because we think of do or die as the cliche, but that's a misquote. Tennyson actually says do and die. Do and die. And uh, a cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them volleyed and thundered. It's got a real uh, galloping measure, like ba-da-dum, ba-da-dum, ba-da-bum, ba-da-bum. And I think that's because Tennyson had read in the Times, in the account of the battle, the phrase, someone had blundered. And so he sees someone had blundered, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And that's what powers the whole thing. And probably realizing that hundred rhymed. And he wrote it six weeks later. Like, it's funny to think about these guys writing these immortal verses just as kind of topical, it was, newsy things. It was things. a news item, it right? Would be, it would be like me doing a YouTube video about, you know, something that happened three weeks ago about the Levi's IPO or something. Well, because there weren't telephones, right, it took quite a bit of time for the news to get back. Yeah, he probably wrote it within days of, of people becoming aware. Of hearing about it, right. Um, so it was clear that this was a suicide run. And what, what immortalizes it in history, is that this light brigade, under the command of the Earl of Cardigan, does not question the order. They line up and begin their charge. And they charge down this valley and are receiving fire from three different sides, from the front and from the heights on either side. And within the context of this era of Victorian England, this is chivalric, this is emblematic of a kind of heroism that is not just a heroism of the officer's corps, but of the valiant men of Britain to charge into the guns. And we see this 
throughout this era produce large numbers of casualties because you're not meant to either question orders or balk at what is clearly a, a thing you cannot survive, right? And then we see this in World War I especially where they say, over the top, boys, mm-hmm. and the entire army climbs up out of the trenches and is just mown down. But they keep going and their officers push them on and they keep standing up and getting killed. And that's, is that supposed to be, is there supposed to be a romantic appeal of this to the people at home? Like, uh, well, of course, hundreds died, but is, is, isn't that a small price to pay for such a beautiful act of bravery and selflessness? And, and look at these sentimental poems we get out of it. And It absolutely is. And it's part of this uh, superior people mentality, this... Um, right. This, uh, that's why we'll win. That's right. We're not, you know, we're not cowards. We're not these base characters from the Orient, we are the the big men, the strong men. But Tennyson's poem is implicitly critical. It does say someone had blundered. I mean, did, it does. Did, did any of that factor into the reaction? Was there like, we need reforms? I don't want to jump ahead. Well, so, so the problem is that Cardigan is regarded by his men as a fool and a terrible commander. Now, uh, Lucan is not respected really either, and uh, Ragland... Raglan, not at all. I mean, all three of these men are... I'm seeing a problem with uh, the pr- promotion of the aristocracy. <laughs> if, you, if you read letters home from any of the soldiers under their command, they are almost universally contemptuous and dismissive of the talent of these people. He's a prat. And He's so a twat. Cardigan does not question the order. Uh, either does Lucan. Lucan is sending his hated brother-in-law up the channel. And so the Light Brigade charges ahead and are eviscerated. What are the what are the numbers like? Is this- so there are 670 members of the Light Brigade, all on horses. Mm-hmm. And against all odds, they actually make it up the length of the valley and charge over the Russian lines and begin a sort of horse-to-hand combat, you know, sabers against guns, in a way that's, that's astonishing, quite impressive. Uh, of the 670 men during this charge... I mean, they're charging a mile and a quarter up this valley. Under fire for almost all of it. Under fire for almost all of it. And once they, once they uh, surmount the Russian lines and do a kind of fast battle there, I mean, they're not, they're a light cavalry. They're not meant to take and hold ground. They're meant to do a kind of slash and, and dash mm-hmm. attack. The heavy cavalry under, under Lucan does not follow they sort of stay up at the end of the valley and uh, and are waiting for a second order to proceed and take the ground, you know, to... Uh, They're in no hurry. And so the Light Brigade does a little bit of, of slashing around and then turns and has to retreat up the valley, again, under tremendous fire. And of the 670 men that rode up there, 110 were killed, 160 were wounded. So 270... Mm-hmm. Men out of action. 375 horses killed. Oh, wow. Fully half the horses. So surprising that as many men survived as did. And they were then sort of rotated out of battle. Uh, the aide-de-camp who issued the order, Captain Nolan, was killed at the very beginning of the charge. So uh, later on when the the disaster was investigated, Nolan was a convenient scapegoat because he wasn't around to defend himself. And so there were a lot of different stories about what Nolan said. Uh, But Cardigan returned to England, and in the early days after the report, and partly as a result of of Tennyson's poem, Cardigan was greeted as a hero. 
and showered with accolades. And a fashion icon. And, and he popularized this sweater. But Cardigan had made the charge and had been seen all the way up over the Russian lines. He yeah. was identified as one of the... He's the inspirational figure. Super right? brave. Although when he realized he couldn't hold that ground, he turned around and various reports either... He claimed that he went... He retreated at a walk so as to inspire his men. But there are many, many eyewitness accounts that said he was racing back. Even retreating at a walk is not really the most inspiring thing you can do for your men, right? But, but certainly not retreating at a gallop. Right. And so there were still men attacking the lines as Cardigan uh, ran back. But uh, after he's back in England and being feted and offered all manner of accolade, other men return and start to cast a doubt on his story of his own heroism. Um, this is a classic uh, kind of a war, post-war movie scenario, kind of a Kurds under fire, who really ordered the code red, kind of a 90s vibe here. Right. And, and when it's discovered what a debacle it was, Cardigan, under questioning, blames it on Lucan, his hated brother-in-law. And Lucan isn't back yet to defend himself. Hmm. And when he does return, he asks for a military court-martial to defend himself, but he's denied. So you, you could really use the longer media cycles back then, you yeah. know, like, I'm going to have control of this story for like three weeks, so let's blame Lucan. But he comes back and makes a defense in front of Parliament of himself, and uh, both men sort of blame Raglan for the bad... Gesture. The, the bad command. But Raglan, very depressed by the events of the time, still there in in the field of battle, you know, in the, in the aftermath, in the weeks after, um, inconveniently or conveniently for him, dies of dysentery. So he's no longer there to uh, defend himself either. Cry Mia River. That's right. That's what I would have said in the Cry Mia if, when somebody died. Cry Mia like, uh, River. People would have loved that. That would have been my signature move. I love it. So both Cardigan and Lucan, popular opinion starts to turn, and it's realized the queen withdraws some of her offers to make uh, Cardigan an earl, or, oh, you know, really? uh, uh, to invest him in the order of the garter, you know, to make him a real aristocrat. Mm -hmm. But because they wore onions in their belts, um, as was the style of the time, the style of the time, neither man was really clearly culpable. There were just enough people uh, with these sweeping arm gestures, and just enough contradictory reports that neither guy could be held responsible. And so, again, in the style of the time, they were both given promotions <laughs> and uh, lived out their lives. Uh, Cardigan retired and, by all accounts, was a completely self-deluding individual who continued to... He was the hero of Sebastopol for he, the rest of his days? He continued to act as the hero of Sebastopol and actually was given, you know, even in retirement, was promoted in the army. Um, his sweaters were found on models, uh, uh, Scando pop groups named for him. Well, and I still wear his namesake sweater, you know, almost every day. I have some version of a cardigan on because but do you, do you I'm think, a little bit of a dad. But do you think about, like, how it's really unfair to... I don't. I, I have, to the men of his command? I, I have disassociated it from the man himself. It's Fred Rogers now. He, he now owns the cardigan. But also, Lucan was somewhat rehabilitated by his eloquent speech in front of Parliament, and so was also given a promotion, and also lived out his days in aristocratic splendor. 
At least tell me this whole thing ended sweeping gesture-based military communication. No? Well, unfortunately, no. The military did not especially reform itself after this time. It was still... Still uh, an aristocratic officer corps. That's right. Giving weird orders. But... um, plausible deniability. But in the end, the Allies did win the Crimean War. They pushed the Russians back out of the Balkans. They did not push the Russians out of the Crimea... And it ended up being sort of... It should be called the Balkan War. Has anybody thought of this? Well, I'd like to write a letter. You know, the the real famous battles were fought there in Ukraine. So, you know, why are you going to waste a bunch of time over here in in, uh, the Vulcan Mountains when you could be on this glamorous, you know, Odessa, Sevastopol? Those are... Right, but think how much majesty and romance there would be for Moldova today if we weren't uh, assigning everything to Odessa and Sevastopol. We've already talked extensively about Moldova too much some would argue and didn't really get a, a huge wave of, of applause and response except for that one guy from Moldova who was like you are the wrongest people of all I will write strong letter we thought we would be offered official honors in Moldova we thought we'd all be named to the order of the wild celery and right and nothing happened and there would be a little town called uh, Kenapol uh, omnibus time <laughs> didn't happen no um, but in the end the Allies won, and we had to. We lived in a little interregnum, and then uh, it was only a little while after this that the Austro-Prussian War began. When um, clearly it was now time for the Germans to fight one another, but uh, but Prussia in the north had allied with Italy in the south. It does kind of seem like they're just spinning a twister thing and being like, "Okay, now we're going to have a war with uh, Austria and Prussia and <laughs> versus Italy." Go. <laughs> Uh, but when we think about, you know, when we think about the 19th century and think about it as kind of a period of Pax Victoria, mm-hmm. we're we're often conveniently forgetting the... If you leave out literally <laughs> dozens of wars. And the, and the, the millions dead uh, for the wars over what became um, pretty static borders that we use even today. Like none of this, the Russians, you know, had their time uh, just as the Germans did, but... Good thing 700,000 people died for nothing. That's That's got to be a good feeling. Well, not for nothing. Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem is still read by undergraduates. Well, everywhere that, that that hasn't been supplanted by a feminist theory class. And that concludes The Charge of the Light Brigade, entry 208.GN5009, certificate number 38694, in the omnibus. Now, hopefully, along with white male poets, uh, social media is soon consigned to the dung heap of history. That dung heap? Is that the expression? The, the ash the, heap? The, the ash hill? Let's say, I mean, I think the, you can the, say dung heap or ash heap. The Moldova of history? The problem with ash heap is it, it sounds, sounds like, like a sheep. Yeah, cry me a river. Uh, uh, Whereas but, dung heap, you're not going to mistake that for anything. No, there's only one thing a dung heap can be. It's also much less pleasant than an ash heap. Ashes seem like the most sterile kind of garbage. Right. Like ash heap seems kind of nice. But we may be uh, broadcasting this program to sentient dung heaps. So they're going to say, really? Thanks a lot. (laughs) I bet they use a different word. (laughs) Even if they are somehow sentient dung heap. And what are they the dung of? Some other creature? Dung heap. It's some other creature that produces sentient dung. They have a beautiful parasitic or a symbiotic relationship. Well, I hate to always reference the movie Idiocracy, but it may be that, or or, uh, WALL-E, but it may just be that the world is covered with dung. It makes it uninhabitable, and then the dung becomes 
self-aware. So there's no Wally character scooping it up one piece of garbage at a time? Maybe there is, and he's regarded as like the ultimate criminal. I like that you said it right. You said Wally. Wally. Accent on the second syllable. This whole podcast, this whole entry has been an an exercise in, in getting you to say... Cavalry ride. Cavalry. Like by the end, you weren't even doing the pause anymore. Like it went from cavalry to cavalry. Well, almost. Do think, I do feel like I said it like cavalry, cavalry. Do you think you might revert? <sighs> cavalry. When you said wait for the L, save the L, mm. that I feel like is something I can remember. Save the L. Should we get you a little bumper sticker? Save the L's. Keep it out of Soviet. Just save it. Save the L will be on the back of the... Russia has no warm water ports t-shirt. Save the L. Uh, in our day, we were valiant uh, defenders of the dung heap that is social media. Uh, we were at John Roderick and at Ken Jennings on Twitter. John was also on Instagram under his name as a handle. Uh, collaboratively, we were at Omnibus Project. Please like, follow, and share. Like, follow, and share. <laughs> Whose voice is that? <laughs> a little... Uh, look for me with the look for the record with me oh, on the look cover. Look for the record with me on the cover. <laughs> Little built this bill reference there for built the old. Built this bill. I did. I couldn't tell what you were doing just from the voice. Yeah. Uh, so true. And now I've been thrown off by the built this bill. Oh, reference. sorry. You were there. Uh, uh, social after media. Instagram. Uh, email. Uh, speaking of social media, I usually do Facebook first. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Because I'm talking about social media. Sure, 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 sure. The one bright spot on social media would be the Futurelings Facebook group which is very exercised over the use of the word panties. Oof, now you said it. I feel like there's no way you should be taking all the heat. Thank you. They didn't like that you said ruffly panties. Oh, but now I just said that as well. Arg. So please follow them for fun and fellowship. Uh, you can communicate with us via electronic mail, if there is such a thing in your era, at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. You can even send us physical mail. Please. At the Omnibus Project P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Is that everything? That's everything. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. Our final word will be cavalry. Pronounced correctly. As the as the the, the sun explodes, <laughs> as the blood wave <laughs> takes us over, I will shout, Cavalry! <laughs> if Providence, in the form of a deist, Calendar of plants and insects. A, mechani- a mechanistic, perfectly mechanistic god. If uh, if such a clockwork god allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Cavalry! For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.